Welcome to Forging Plowshares. We hope you enjoy this conversation and are challenged by it. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. And in uh, Ephesians 1, at Paul, at the beginning of the book, he describes the Christian life as seeing differently. And this is where I want to take the title for today. And that is that we're going to talk about the conversion of the imagination. That is, seeing differently. Paul describes it here in chapter 1 as seeing from the heart. Let's read verse 18. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of his calling. What are the riches of of the glory of his inheritance in the saints and what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe okay and then at the end of the book he describes the Christian life as seeing and doing everything differently in terms of this new vision he describes it as waking up I don't know if you've heard the phrase are you woke wake up Verse 13 of chapter 5. But all things become visible when they are exposed by the light. For everything that becomes visible is light. For this reason it says, awake sleeper, arise from the dead and Christ will shine on you. And then verse 15. Therefore be careful how you walk, not as unwise men but as wise making the most of your time because the days are evil. So do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord. So as he says in verse 8, we're to walk in the light and not in the darkness according to the vision that we have. We're to see differently from the heart. And the difference, he says, is like the difference between being dead or being asleep or being alive and being awake. That's what conversion does. And conversion here, what he's talking about, of course, is not an instantaneous thing. He's talking about a process, I think, that is inclusive of all of our lives. It's a process that takes place over the course of our lives. And so apparently, and this is the part that I envy some of you, it's like a new song. Right? You can sing this song. You enter into a a world of music that is on the order of intoxication but spiritual intoxication. That is, don't be drunk on wine, but rejoice in the heart. Be wise, don't be unwise. And the way that C.S. Lewis described his own baptism is as a baptism of the imagination. Lewis had a high regard for Plato. I don't know if you've seen the two movies about C.S. Lewis, but they're called Shadowlands. And, of course, the title is really a kind of imagery that you get in Plato, because those who are 
in the cave in Plato's you know, world, they only see the shadows. They're not seeing reality and then they need someone to come and say, wait a minute, there's a whole world up there if you'll come out of this cave. In 1916, when Lewis, he was 18 years old, he was still an atheist. And he bought a book by a man named George MacDonald. I don't know if you all have read MacDonald, but MacDonald wrote stories that in fact are very similar to C.S. Lewis's fairy tales, you know, his Narnia tales. But MacDonald's were called a Fairy Romance was one of the, the titles. And this is the book that Lewis bought. And he writes about what this book did to him. He was in a railway station and he bought the book and then he stepped onto the train and he says, I was really a kind of split personality because nearly all I loved, I believed to be imaginary. Nearly all that I believed to be real, I thought was grim and meaningless. He lived a, an active life of the mind, of the imagination, but he thought, well, that's disconnected from the reality that I know. And the way that George MacDonald writes, George MacDonald is a, a preacher, uh, a novelist, but he brings those two worlds together. And Lewis had never seen that before. He's saying the world of your imagination and the world of reality need to be brought together. And as he read MacDonald's book later, he began to experience this conversion of the imagination. And here's how he describes it. Now I saw the bright shadow coming out of the book into the real world and resting there, transforming all common things and yet itself unchanged. Or more accurately, I saw the common things drawn in to the bright shadow. That night my imagination was in a certain sense baptized. The rest of me, not unnaturally, took longer. I had not the faintest notion what I'd let myself in for by buying fantasties. And of course he hadn't become a Christian yet, but he had begun the process of conversion. He, he gives us another picture of this. It's called Meditations in a Tool Shed. And he's, he's out in his tool shed and you know the door is cracked a little bit and the light is shining into the shed. And he describes that standing this way and all you could see was you really couldn't see anything other than in the beam of light. You know you can see the little particles of dust and things. And then he said I moved over and I looked along that beam of light. And he said the sun was shining outside through the crack. And from where I stood that beam of light I looked along it, instantly the whole previous picture vanished, you know, the darkness of the shed. I saw no tool shed, no beam, and stood I saw framed in the irregular cranny at the top of the door, green leaves moving on the branches of a tree outside, and beyond that ninety-odd million miles away, the sun. Looking along the beam, and looking at the beam, are two very different experiences. I think that's two ways of looking at God and two ways of looking at the Bible. We can look at it. We can look at God as a kind of object. But I think that's missing the point. 
We're to see everything in the light of what we find in Scripture and who God is. That is, we're not just to take God and add Him to an already existing world, but we're to see everything changed up in the light of putting on the spectacles of the Word of God. And so are we, you know, how are we looking? Do we study it objectively, the Bible, or do we look along the beam of light? I'm convinced that whatever the field of endeavor, whether it's philosophy, psychology, theology, Christianity, that each field of discourse, it's going to hit a wall that will show its failure. There's a failure of thought that is just characteristic of all failures of failed human thought. That when we tend to look at things, the failure will show itself in a full stop. Conversation stops, questions stop, they cease. Imagination is halted, it's stopped, it's frozen. Because the form of thought is not alive. It's not animated. It's not dynamic. Movement ceases because it presumes or desires in a kind of objectified fashion. Maybe it wants too much. It wants the world. And it ends up with too little. And of course we can't see it all. We're in the middle of the world. You know we can't look at the sunlight. We can't look at the beam of light at the same time we're looking along the beam of light. One is to objectify the light and one is to use the light. In theological terms, God is turned into an object to be contained within human knowledge while human knowing is assigned, you know, a godlike power, maybe. This, of course, is the fall of man. By Genesis 6, 5, it says, God saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was evil continually. The fall is a fall of human imagination. And conversion is a redemption of human imagination. If seeing rightly is coming awake, maybe this explains sloth. Why is sloth one of the deadly sins? Sloth is not mere sleepiness or laziness. Dorothy Sayers describes it as a spiritual condition of despair. It is the sin that believes in nothing, enjoys nothing, hates nothing, finds purpose in nothing, lives for nothing, and remains alive because there is nothing for which it will die. There's a famous scene in Lewis's novels. He paints this world of Narnia, which is kind of this land in which Aslan, a Christ-like figure, moves. And of course, there's always this war between the White Witch and Aslan. But in one of the scenes in the book, The Silver Chair, the Queen of Underland is holding Jill and Eustace and Puddleglum. She's got them captive in this subterranean lair, like a cave, like Plato's cave. And the Queen tries to convince them there is no world outside this cavern. 
This is all there is. And she creates a kind of thick, drowsy smell, soft music. Think of the serpent in the garden trying to pervert the imagination. She says, there is no land called Narnia. And Puddle Glum, he protests. He says, I come from up there. She says, is there a country up among the stones and mortars of the roof? And of course, as she talks, as she casts her spell, they all begin to doubt that there ever was such a place. Jill says, no, I suppose that the other world must be a dream. Yes, says the witch, there never was any world but mine. And with the last of her waking strength, Jill suddenly remembers Aslan. You know, Aslan is a lion, a Christ-like figure. But Lewis tells us this is no tame lion. This is a dangerous lion, not to be tamed. But the witch says, no, that's just a big cat. And look how you can put nothing into your make-believe without copying it from the real world, this world of mine. This is the only world. And at the end of the scene, Puddle Glum, he actually jumps up and he stamps his feet in the fire. And he kind of clears his head and he makes this speech. Suppose we have only dreamed or made up all those things, trees and grass and sun and Aslan. Suppose we have. Then all I can say is that in that case, the made-up things seem a good deal more important than the real ones. I'm going to live as like a Narnian as I can, even if there isn't any Narnia. Think of the serpent trying to convince the first pair, trying to pervert their imagination, saying, you can eat of this tree in the middle of the garden, you'll be like God. And of course, the temptation is to think outside of being human, to capture a transcendent divine perspective. Think of Satan's temptation of Jesus. Same thing. He shows him all the kingdoms of the earth and says, if you will worship me, all of this will be yours. In each case, you know, the what if held out the possibility of a good coming from violating the created order, of getting out of this world in some way. I think that describes the human problem. I'll put it philosophically. I know how much you all enjoy philosophy. <laughs> Immanuel Kant says, well, you know, all we have is the phenomenal world. We can never get at the noumena, the thing in itself. Friedrich Wilhelm Hegel. He puts it this way. He says, the thought is the reality and the reality is the thought. And he describes history then as an ever-moving attempt to obtain the object of the spirit. But you can never obtain it. The noumena, it's unobtainable. The spirit in Hegel, you never arrive. I think this helps explain, you know, the, the philosophers are just reflections of the time. I think we live in a Hegelian, Kantian world. We live in a world of virtual reality. Uh, you don't have to think real hard. 
just walk down the street and see where people's attention is. This virtual world actually displaces reality. That's not just a problem of our age, but I think it's peculiar to our age. We're particularly caught up in it. And I think what the philosophical impasse illustrates is what I'm describing. There's a full stop disengagement with reality. People are cut off from the reality of the world. And it's not simply that they've lost the vision of God, the hope of heaven, but actually they've lost the reality, the earthly reality has gone missing. And so I think it's peculiarly sharp at this particular moment in history. But I think this is what the Apostle Paul is writing about. He says this is the lie. This is the dynamic of desire aroused around the law. We would imagine the law, the symbolic, the thought world, contains a fullness of reality apart from reality itself. And so God is either posited as a thing in the world to be known like any object of sight, like an idol, or he's consigned to an absolutely transcendent unknown. I was going to tell you the Anselmian ontological argument, but you don't need to hear that God is the greatest thought that can be thought. Because God's not a thought. We can't capture God in our mind. And that's precisely the problem. Anselm, yeah, I have this thought, he says, but I end in darkness. And so I think what we're encountering in Paul in the New Testament is a conversion. We see this in the Apostle Paul, right? A conversion of the imagination. Think of Paul's conversion on the road to Damascus. He passes through blindness, and that blindness is a kind of metaphor for his life outside of Christ. He realizes, I've always been blind. That's why I was persecuting the Christians. That's why I was arresting them. And then he's baptized and the scales fall from his eyes and he can see what he could never see before. And I think we can see this in the details of the way Paul treats the Bible. It had the Old Testament all along, but he begins to read it through the vision of Christ and Christ crucified and raised again. He begins to read the story of Israel delivered out of Egypt as a deliverance of all of us out of sin. He begins to read the story of the temple. Christ is the true temple. As we are the temple, we are the living stones. He's reading the same book, but he's reading it through a new interpretive lens. And I think that Paul is our model in this, in this mode of interpretation, that everything is to be changed up as we see from the heart, Lewis describes his period as an atheist. He says, not many years ago when I was an atheist, if anybody asked me, why do you not believe in God? My reply would have been, well, look at the universe we live in. History is largely a record of crime, war, disease, and terror. The universe is running down. All stories will come to nothing. All life will turn out in the end to have been transitory and senseless contortion upon the idiotic face of infinite matter. If you ask me to believe that this is the work of a benevolent and omnipotent spirit, 
I reply that all the evidence points in the opposite direction. Either there is no spirit behind the universe, or else a different spirit, an indifferent one, indifferent to good and evil, and perhaps an evil spirit reign. But then, of course, he goes through conversion. But I think we have to dwell a little bit in that failed story, that failed imagination, because I think that's always the temptation for all of us, that we live with a kind of portion of reality or a misperception of reality. Lewis betrays this, that Aslan, the Christ-like figure, some people can't hear his voice. When he speaks, all they hear is a roar of a lion. I think for many of us, that certainly is Christ for us, but maybe that's just the way reality is for us, that we're incapable of inhabiting the world as God would have us inhabit it. Some of Lewis's best characters, I mean worst, <laughs> He does a wonderful job with evil. He has Uncle Andrew, the scheming uncle, in the very first of the Narnia tales. He knows all about Narnia. He's been there. He's seen paradise. And yet all he sees and wants to take from it is power. He wants magical power. And then young Edmund, he slips into Narnia. And the white witch gives him Turkish delight. I don't know, do you all know what Turkish delight is? I didn't really know, but my children had read the Narnia tales, and I was going back and forth to England, and I, and I went to Herod's in uh, London. They had Turkish delight in this beautiful wooden box. You know, you open it up, and it's just this most delicious sweet you've ever had. Of course, Edmund, that's all he wants. He just wants more Turkish delight. He'll do anything for Turkish delight. The White Witch is Lewis's great evil character. She's beautiful, and I think we should take note of that. She is beautiful. It's not that beauty is necessarily always equated with the good, right? That beauty can be a kind of deception. And she's even wise in a way. And I'm thinking here, and I think Lewis was thinking, of the depiction of Satan in the book of Ezekiel. Do you remember? That he's a beautiful creature. He walks among the stones. And I don't know the significance, but the stones apparently represent great beauty. And of course, the problem with his beauty is he knows it. <laughs> and he wants everyone to worship him. And that's the white witch. She wants to rule Narnia. And of course, she is not a ruler at all. And so... They each order the world. They each picture Narnia. They take a little piece of it, but they can't really hear Aslan. They can't really discern reality. And so they shape the world according to their desire, according to their limited understanding. Now, as we read, and this is the beauty of reading the Chronicles of Narnia, even a small child can read it and say, wait a minute. These people are small. They're too small for the world that Lewis has, has created. They don't see everything. They don't see the way that we, the readers, see it. That is that we kind of have the view of something more complete. We've heard Aslan speak. We know he's a wild lion, but he's good and he's gentle. 
And they each make then choices based on their failed understanding. Stanley Howarth describes this as the moral life. He says, it doesn't simply consist of correctly choosing, but we need to be trained to be able to see. We need to enlighten the vision of our heart, that we need to expand our character and see differently. And then we are up to the task of perceiving reality. And through moral development, and this, of course, is what Lewis is telling us. He takes these weak characters and he transforms them, just as he himself was transformed. Edmund, who all he wanted was Turkish delight, slowly he's able to discern the words of Aslan. And, of course, he comes to love him. And the development of moral insight then comes with a training in the imagination. We need to be schooled. Our imagination needs to be discipled and disciplined. This is what Paul is saying. Walk as Jesus walked. And this is a discipline of the imagination. As George MacDonald describes, some dreams, poems, musical phrases and pictures, they awaken feelings such as one never had before, as with the aroma of an idea. We need to be able to smell differently, to see differently, to hear differently. And so if we only know one kind of story, Lewis has a world of flatland. Maybe we're trained to see everything in two dimensions with stick figures. I don't know about you. I, there are some kinds of music. I'm kind of a barbarian when it comes to music. But I just love cello music. And I love the music of Yo-Yo Ma. Do any of you know Yo-Yo Ma? Just a, a genius, a brilliant celloist. But imagine, see, you've never heard Yo-Yo Ma. How can I tell you about him? Maybe we could get the chalkboard out and I could draw some lines and some maybe uh, mathematical notations. But probably the better thing would be, let's just bring in the CD or if Yo-Yo is visiting, I doubt that he'll visit, we could have him play for us. I need to expose you to the music, but in some way to experience the reality full on. And I think this is a kind of way that we need to witness to Christ, right? Not everybody has eyes to see and ears to hear immediately, but we need to open people up to a different world. And they're going to see that different world in the way that we live, in the way that we perceive things. And there's those that Maybe they can't appreciate fine stories, good music. Maybe they can't hear the voice of Christ. And I think you don't hear of a modern Wall Street-like character. Maybe has a, the most insipid imagination. I don't think we can translate everything into Wall Street. It can't all be profit and loss. It can't all be power. I don't think we can translate the Christian vision into the world of an insipid, stunted imagination. So sometimes we just need to show the full reality of the whole thing. This is Uncle Andrew, you know, and the magician's nephew. He never can hear Aslan. He never is able to discern his voice. And when Aslan comes, he runs. And he never gets any better. He never repents. 
And we all know people like that. They'll never hear. It's a mystery, isn't it? But I still think it's better just expose him to the lion's roar. Let him hear him roar. And maybe he'll see, well, other people are actually understanding that roar. I think to recover God must mean a kind of simultaneous recovery of the world, a recovery of curiosity, of participation. Maybe it's an alternative deployment of language. Maybe we could describe it as a recovery of the language of Adam and Eve before the fall, in which Adam, he's really working with God, isn't he? In naming the animals, he's actually sorting them out ordering the chaos, assigning value, a kind of co-participant. I think we're to be co-participants in creation. We are to be creative in our own way. We might picture it in terms of the Jewish temple, a kind of microcosmos with heaven and earth coming together, the holy of holies and the holy place and the whole cosmos. They're conjoined. And the high priest, when he, you know, I think we've got this backward. We've got the high priest leaving and going to meet God. But actually the Old Testament has it the other way. The high priest comes out with YHWH engraved on the sign on his arm and his forehead. He is Yahweh coming out of the Holy of Holies, emerging into the cosmos, into the world, cleansing it. You know, that's the sprinkling of the blood. He's giving the life of God to the world. And so, new creation work, that's our work. We are assigned to be mediators and priests who serve in the temple of creation to usher in the vision that we've had, to witness to the movement of God. That's the way C.S. Lewis always describes Aslan. He says, Aslan is on the move. And this is the training, I think, that we've been primed in Scripture to wake up to, to begin to walk in. Think of Psalms 19. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of the, His hands. Day after day they pour forth speech. Night after night they reveal knowledge. This is not a language or speech that one just recognizes naturally. You have to be trained to hear it. You've had to learn your Torah. He says, as they have no speech, they use no words, no sound is heard from them. It's not articulate speech to most, yet their voice goes out into all the earth, their words to the ends of the world. And so, as a psalmist explained, one hears this speech due to the working of Torah. He says, the statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. The word of God resonates with the world, bringing life and light. He's really saying bringing wisdom to the simpleton. So it's a different order of language from that which would divide up the world and render the world a dead, created, cold, mechanical system. Paul says there's a dead letter which kills. I think that's the way that many people speak, the language that they use. And then there's a living word which creates, it animates, it turns you to the world, not to a dead stop. 
It doesn't turn you inward. You know, this is Anselm when he's describing the ontological argument. He says, go into the room and close the door. And then close the door of your mind. So that you're in your own little head. And you're going to discover God there. I think the opposite movement is necessary. Open the door of your mind. Open the door of your world. And step out. Because that's where you're going to see Aslan. You're going to see God on the move. The living word, I think, causes us to quest, to go deeper, to find fullness. It opens the conversation. Let me end by giving you a vision. This is the vision, the final vision, I think that we're to hold in place from Revelation. It portrays what awaits God's children. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with men. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. In 1963, C.S. Lewis wrote, he, he had a huge correspondence. And he wrote to this woman who was dying of cancer. And he tried to convince her of a different sort of image. He says, think of yourself just as a seed patiently waiting in the earth, waiting to come up, a flower in the gardener's good time, up into the real world, the real waking. I suppose that our whole present life, look back on from there, will seem only a drowsy half-waking. We are here in the land of dreams, but the cock crow is coming. Thank you for listening to this episode of Forging Plowshares. You can learn more and join our growing community by visiting forgingplowshares.org. Please consider supporting at patreon.com slash paulaxton or by donating at forgingplowshares.org slash donate.